again, welcome. We're super glad that you are here. Um, If you have a Bible this morning, you can open it up to the book of John and chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible or didn't bring one this morning, we'd love to give you one back at the welcome table as well. Feel free to grab one of those. We're going to jump right into our passage this morning, finishing out John chapter 2 as we continue through our series entitled, Follow Jesus. We're going to begin in verse 13 this morning and read all the way through verse 22, this next snapshot of the life of Jesus. So let's jump right into our passage this morning, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The scripture says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's take a minute and let's ask for God's blessing on his word this morning as we jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is powerful. And we thank you that here in this passage, like all others, Old Testament and new from beginning to end, you show us Jesus. You show us hope. You show us truth. You show us life. You show us salvation. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. Lord, encourage us. Fill us with hope and joy afresh. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning is quite simply this, was Jesus a revolutionary? It's just crazy stuff that we read here right off the bat in this short passage in John chapter 2. So was Jesus a revolutionary? You know, we live in an era in our own history now in the present in which revolution of sorts is again somewhat a popular notion. And the divide between the various political factions and opinions in our nation, I would say, has never been greater or uglier than right now. Most everyone will agree that the world is not as it should be. Everyone recognizes problem or problems, but what we don't agree with is the solution. Right? So the debate between things like socialism and capitalism is white hot. The debate on how we should solve issues of poverty or of race or of justice or of rights or of civil and religious freedoms, the debate on how to solve declining morality in our country, it is raging. And many people have submitted their idea of what a solution might be. Marxism, the social and political theory behind communism, was the work of a man named Karl Marx, and in 1848, he wrote a book called The Communist Manifesto, 
It has reemerged lately in a repackaged theory in our own day, and this submits itself as yet another solution to how do we solve the problems that we all see and recognize. Many have taken this passage that I just read, and this is why I start this way. Many have taken this passage in John chapter 2 to suggest or to state categorically that Jesus was this same kind of revolutionary, the political revolutionary that we see from what I just described. And as a church, we're not going to skip around the Scripture. We're not going to avoid passages that may be difficult or hard to understand or even controversial at times because the Word of God is truth. The tough stuff is important. And the important stuff we find in the scripture. And so even as we address this, we have to ask that question, well, what is the solution? And how do I as a believer approach the world? And how do I deal with the wickedness and the struggle and the hurt that I see in my world? What is the solution? But we approach it. We find the answer. We find the solution in the scripture. The scripture tells us that every word of God is flawless. That it is a shield to those that take refuge in it. Says Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. The scripture, it says, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man, the woman of God, might be fully equipped for every good work, says 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And so we look to the word for our answers as we seek to understand our world and as we seek to understand who. Jesus is. Not who he was, but who he is. So here's the bottom line. To be really clear, the bottom line, and I put this on the screen this morning, the bottom line, Jesus did not come to defend the status quo or to overthrow it. He did not come to defend the status quo or to overthrow it. He came to make people new. Let me put that another way to you. Jesus did not come for propping up the corrupt establishment or for revolutionary destruction, but to spiritually change and save lives. Was Jesus a revolutionary? No. At least not in the way that we tend to think of it. At least not in this political way that is being described. But let's dig deeper. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who served as senior pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia from 1968 until he passed away in 2000, wrote this in his commentary on John on this particular passage. He says this, and it is a helpful word for us this morning. Jesus was not a revolutionary in the way most people understand that word. On the other hand, he was not a defender of the establishment either. And it is correct to say that he actually called men and women to a revolution, although a peaceful one, that was far more radical and long-term than anything that people then would in themselves have dreamed possible. So let's go to the scripture now. I want to give you four applications that we see here in John chapter 2 as we come to understand who Jesus is and how he has called us to follow after him. Number one is this. As we look at Jesus, we see this. Jesus was righteously angry about the corruption that he saw in his father's temple. 
righteously angry. Why? Well, first of all, there are these money changers, and money changers, just like the tax collectors of the day, took more than was their due. This was an injustice in itself. You see, foreign money was not accepted as an offering in the temple. And so if you came from the outside and you wanted to bring an offering of worship, you had to go to a money changer who had set up a booth in the temple and exchange that money. But the problem was they would charge an inflated price. And the problem was they were doing it in God's house of worship. People also sold sacrifices. So people came into town and they wanted to offer up a sacrifice of worship. So they sold these sacrifices to be offered up at the temple, again, at inflated prices that lined the pockets of those corrupt temple priests. But Jesus' outrage was most of all, not even those things, but most of all, because his temple... The Lord's place of worship, a house of worship, and a place where God's presence dwelt was being defiled and polluted by a fake, a false, a ritualistic worship, and the people's hearts were far from God. And that broke Jesus' heart the most. This is a challenging reminder for us because our hearts can tend towards that same mistake. We may look at that story and say, never me. I would never do that, Jesus. But our hearts so often can so easily, even as we sit in church, our minds can drift to the markets and to the merchandise and to the things outside and beyond rather than focusing in on God and his good word for us. It is easy for us in worship to allow it to become that same kind of a routine, to become ritualistic, to become impersonal where I'm simply going through a motion but my heart is far from the Lord and Jesus' anger, his holy righteous anger was white hot in that moment against these things that he saw taking place and so Jesus took action and it may be action that makes us uncomfortable But we submit ourselves to Jesus and to who he is, even as we read. It says that Jesus made a whip out of cords. It says that tables crashed. And it says that Jesus drove them out of the temple courts, out of God's house. You know, we want want meek and mild Jesus. And he is. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says, I am meek and mild. He is that. But we cannot put Jesus in a box because we see this story and this is a part of the full snapshot of who Jesus is as well. And what we learn as we get a full picture, not just select the snapshots that we like, but as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see Jesus, the Son of God, who does mercy and justice perfectly and fully, who does grace and truth perfectly and fully, who does meekness and righteous anger perfectly and fully. Jesus hated sin. Jesus hated death. We see his anger, his righteous anger towards those things many times, and we are called to follow him in that same perspective. But number two, Jesus goes beyond our world's broken categories. Hallelujah. Thank God. Jesus goes well beyond our world's broken 
categories. See, Jesus entered into human history here in this moment that God ordained to be the moment that He would send His only Son into earth, into human history, into Israel. This moment in human history, Israel, God's people, they were hungry for a political Savior and a political solution to their Roman rulers. And their Roman rulers, to say the least, were not good people. One attempted solution that the Israelites came up from with themselves was a group called the Zealots, Z-E-A-L-O-T-S, the Zealots. And the Zealots were a fanatical political faction who was obsessed with Old Testament Jewish law and their expectation that the kingdom of God was coming soon. And they advocated the violent overthrow of Rome. Many of these zealots carried with them swords or daggers that they often used in political killings. In fact, aside from being called the zealots, they had another term in Latin, sicari, that they were referred to as, and sicari literally means assassin. Well, what do we do with that? Jesus, as well as the zealots, both declared that the kingdom of God was coming that the kingdom of God was coming soon, that in fact the kingdom of God was here and now. Jesus himself was critical of King Herod, who among other things he referred to King Herod as a fox in Luke chapter 13. Jesus was crucified under the false accusation that he came to take over politically and become himself the political king of the Jews. Jesus even had a zealot in his 12 disciples. Do you remember this man? One of the twelve, Simon the Zealot, was a member of Jesus' original twelve disciples. And we know that at least Peter and probably several other of his disciples carried with them swords. And here we have Jesus' holy anger in the temple. But Jesus was also a peacemaker, wasn't he? Jesus was a peacemaker. The scripture shows clearly Jesus to be the opponent of every act of political resistance and acts of violence. Matthew 5.39, Jesus says, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Matthew 26, Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know, as we wrestle with this, not only did Jesus have Simon the Zealot in his 12 disciples, he also had Matthew, the tax collector, Levi tax collector, who was the epitome of the corrupt establishment in that era. And Jesus had one of both. And the gospel changed both of them. So when we survey just a little bit of who Jesus was and what he taught, we see from the scripture that Jesus goes beyond our two categories. Because again, Jesus did not come for revolutionary destruction or for propping up a corrupt establishment, but to spiritually change lives. Which brings us to number three. Jesus came for a spiritual revolution that would save lives, not temporarily, but eternally. 
Jesus did not stir up a revolt. He did not attempt to destroy the social order and establish some sort of human utopia. At the same time, Jesus' hope was not in any human institution. Jesus' hope was not in government. Jesus' hope was not even in the temple system. And so as we see who Jesus is and what he does and what he teaches and how he came, it reminds us, first of all, that it is wrong for us to deify any human institution because our true hope does not lie in what human beings, one or all together, can do. Our true hope does not lie in any government of any type. Our true hope is in Jesus. Democrat, Republican, Third party, capitalist, socialist, big government, limited government. Do not mistake them for Christianity or for Christ. Jesus supersedes all of our tiny little human categories. The American way of life has many wonderful aspects to it, for which we are and I am extremely thankful. Many of them are built upon biblical principles. And at the same time, America is not perfect and it has many bad aspects to it because America is not in itself God's kingdom. God's kingdom is God's kingdom. America is not God's new Israel. The church is God's new Israel. No political candidate is your savior. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Secondly, we're not given judgment. God has not given us judgment over earthly rulers. You understand what I'm saying? Judgment will be executed and justice will be established by God alone, who is truly capable of perfect justice. We are not called to destroy the system, but to overcome it radically with the truth, the grace, and the love of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as we saw this summer, as we dug through 1 Peter, the government, even when it's corrupt, is a part of God's ordained plan on earth until the day that Jesus returns to take us home. 1 Peter, submit to authorities. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Not because they are perfect. Because they are broken. Because we look to Jesus. And Jesus himself enters into this discussion when the Pharisees come to him a little later on, seeking to trap him, trying to, trying to get rid of him, they ask him this question. It's an interesting question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And they know that they have trapped Jesus because if he says yes, he will infuriate the revolutionary zealots, and all those who are struggling under a corrupt system. And if he says no, he will infuriate the corrupt establishment and they will surely kill him. By the way, both parties will kill him three years from this scene. What does Jesus do? You remember? He picks up a coin. He shows the Pharisees the coin. He says, whose face is on the coin? 
And they say, Caesar's face is on the coin. And what does he say? He says, render, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give unto God that which is God's. And they had nothing else to say. And they walked away. See, because Jesus called us to a spiritual revolution, one that would bring eternal salvation in heaven. He called us to the most radical thing possible, to leave behind the brokenness, the corruption, and the empty promises of this world and to follow Him as Messiah, as Savior, and as Lord, as the Son of God. At the same time that the Roman authorities were doing all of this, into this world historically and in the scriptures, these Roman authorities, they arrested another man whose name was Barabbas. You remember Barabbas? Barabbas, who we see in the Gospels, was a zealot. He was another zealot, and he had been charged with insurrection and murder by the Romans. See, because he believed, and rightfully so, that life under Roman rule was oppressive. And so he chose to bring about what he thought would be restoration through the use of violence. That was his source of change. You know, as far as we know from the Scripture, Jesus and Barabbas never physically met and had a conversation. But if they were to have met, I think Jesus would have looked at Barabbas and others and said this, your diagnosis is right. There are problems. There is injustice. It is wrong. Your diagnosis is right, but your solution is wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus would have said, you're being a revolutionary with Rome, but what I've come to do is for you to be revolutionary with yourself. Think about what the gospel tells us. Jesus would have said, the system you are setting up that you hope to set up, if you tear this one down and build another one, how do you know that it won't be just as corrupt over time as the one that you have eliminated? Take it from Jesus. The Jew was just as broken and corrupt as the Roman. Take it to our own times. The rich man is as sinful as the poor man. The black man is as sinful and in need of salvation as the white man. Men need forgiveness and repentance and hope and salvation just as much as women because the solution, the hope is in Jesus and in Him alone. I came to bring a revolution, says Jesus, of heart transformation, of every tribe, tongue, and nation, of every economic group, of every racial group, of men, women, and children of all ages from every era of history, every geographic location, I came to bring gospel, heart-level transformation. Get radical with yourself, says Jesus, and recognize that the sin is not just out there, the sin is in here. And I alone can bring forgiveness can bring hope, can bring new life and real life and real joy. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's the very next chapter. You want to get radical, look to Jesus the Savior of the world, rejected by the world, who came to forgive my sin, my brokenness, 
my corruption, my evil. You want to get really radical? Look at the way that Jesus describes following him. This is my life verse. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 through 25. He, Jesus, said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You want to chase what the world offers. You want to chase those empty promises you can, but you will find in the end that they are empty. Jesus says, give up everything and follow me, and in following me, I will give you the world. Not just temporarily eternally. So will you be so revolutionary as to give up those empty promises and follow the Savior of the world? Because Jesus will not ask you to defend the status quo or to overthrow it. He will make you a new person by asking him to be your personal Lord and Savior. How does he do that? Number four and finally, Jesus' mission to save the world was his own death and resurrection from the dead as revealed in his word. This is the final portion of our passage we began with, John uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here we learn that knowledge of God comes through knowledge of Jesus Christ. And knowledge of Jesus Christ comes through the scripture, the word of God. Jesus had just performed a great sign by driving out the corruption and driving out the ritualism from the Lord's temple and the disciples who are still very young, still growing and understanding in their faith. But the disciples saw, they witnessed these moments and what they immediately did was they connected it to the word of God. They saw what Jesus did and they remembered Zeal for your house consumes me. Well, what is that? He's quoting Psalm 69 and verse 9, which had been written a thousand years earlier by King David in the Old Testament. Zeal for your house consumes me, and now they come to understand that that prophetic word is being fulfilled in Jesus. And the disciples followed him because they believed the scriptures, because they believed Jesus' actions and his words. But the Jewish rulers, they never did believe it, even when more miracles and more signs came about. Remember what we just saw last week. A week earlier in the scripture as well, Jesus has just done his first public miracle. He has just changed water into wine at a wedding feast. And that news certainly would have arrived with him as he arrived for Passover into the capital city of Jerusalem. 
The very next verse after our passage, John 2.23, tells us also that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, He did many other signs and miracles among them. So the Scripture doesn't tell us specifically what they were, but left and right Jesus is doing signs and miracles, and these guys have the audacity to come to Him and say, by what sign? Give us a sign. Why are you doing the things that you are doing? As this reminds us, you cannot employ an earthly understanding, a physical understanding, to comprehend spiritual realities. Okay, the Jews hear a promise and they assume that Jesus is talking about the physical temple of Herod. And they ask Jesus, how could you rebuild in three days that which has taken us 46 years to build? And by the way, still wasn't going to be complete for another 37 years because they were not willing to listen to the Scripture because they were not willing to listen to the words of the Son of God. The Old Testament that they knew and they studied, their heart was hard and they would not listen. But deep down, they were angry. They were furious because Jesus had just cleansed the temple and messed with their income stream. He had just messed with their comforts. He had just messed with their status quo. He had just cleansed their corruption from God's house, and they didn't like it. Guys, we have to be willing to do the same. We have to be willing to set down our agenda, our plans, our comforts, and see see life from Jesus' point of view. So there's only one thing Jesus could do to make them believe, and even that, even that miracle, even that sign, they would eventually reject as well. So in this moment, as he looks at these people who refuse to listen, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection and uses the language of the temple to do it. He promises that he will die on the cross to pay for our sins and that he will rise again from the dead, literally and bodily, three days later as a victor over sin. What more revolutionary thing could he do Then the Son of God come to earth, live the perfect life without sin, and then die on a cross to be punished for sins that someone else committed. And then after having died and taken that punishment, to rise again from the dead, which no one else could or ever will or ever has done. Who else but God alone could rise from the dead? No one. Who else but God alone can pardon sin? No one. Who else but God alone can restore the brokenness of humanity and society? No one. Who else but God can reconcile the world to himself? See, Jesus is telling us that he is the true temple. Look at the end of the book. This is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. And John Caught up in the spirit says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's how it ends. So the scripture calls us to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus by living a life of faith. Follow Jesus, and as he has revealed himself by the word of God, follow Jesus because of his grace, his love, his forgiveness, and his mercy. And those disciples show us how, just a little bit. Not notable in the world's eyes. 
guilty for a lot of things. But they saw Jesus' signs and miracles and they gave their lives to follow him in belief. Guys, they weren't very good at it yet. Our salvation is not based on us doing a good job. Our salvation is not based on us having our faith always together and always doing it perfectly. These disciples believed Jesus and they followed him. And they stumbled left and right. Thank God for his grace. Will you follow him as well? Will you follow Jesus into a revolution of peace, a revolution of forgiveness, a revolution of salvation, a revolution of eternal life that he has offered to the world? Let's take a minute and let's pray to King Jesus.